0: Good morning everybody. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Amen. We're going to be in Luke's gospel this morning, so if you would like to open up your Bibles, we'll be in Luke chapter 24. If not, it'll be on the screen. Luke says, "Now on the same day Easter Sunday he means," Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And Jesus asked them, What things? They replied, Things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and they did not find his body there. They came back and told us that they had seen, indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as these women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. But they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am so glad to be in this text today. What a good Easter text. Um, It's the only one in Luke for the whole season of Easter, but it is just such a good one. And I'm so glad that the lectionary puts it uh, in, in the lectionary for us to read together and to think about today. I think that this story is uh, such an important one. It is, for me, the sort of paradigm of the spiritual life, which is not unique in this story uh, in the Gospel of Luke. If you remember, if you were with us last year, we were in the Gospel of Luke for most of the year, and so we talked a lot about this person, this writer of this gospel, and what sort of the characteristics of his gospel were. And one of those things is that Luke is a brilliant storyteller. He tells some of the most memorable and well-known stories in all of the Bible. Uh, people who aren't even, don't even grow up Christian, don't even know about the Bible, know a little bit about things like the prodigal son or the Good Samaritan. Uh, these are all stories from Luke. And so we have here another classic Luke story. Uh, for Luke, uh, storytelling is the greatest way to sort of reach people and share, share about who Jesus was. I also love Luke because he was a great champion of the church. If you remember, Luke wrote another book that's sort of really one manuscript, but our Bible split it up. Does anyone remember what the other book Luke wrote is? Acts, right? And in academia, we don't even call it the gospel of Luke. You say Luke Acts um, because it's all one. It's all one thing. Uh, So for Luke, there is no complete gospel story without the birth and the life of the church. And so Luke, really for us, I think, whenever I read his gospel, he's just a wonderful pastor. He tells stories like a really good pastor, a really good preacher. And he was so intent on telling the people who was reading his book, who he was ministering to, and to the church, about what it's like to follow Jesus. What a like very real life of discipleship looks like. And this story in particular, I think, does such a good job of telling the sort of life cycle of what it means to follow Jesus. And that's what I see in this story, as a sort of life cycle or a process that I think we really see over and over again in the life of faith. All of us are kind of like somewhere along this road to Emmaus at all times in our lives. It's a narrative for a journey that we can all find ourselves in, which is a real gift. If you're a creative type and you hate that there's nothing new under the sun, sorry, It's just real. Um, But the good news is, is that we can enter into the story of God by finding ourselves here. The good thing about not making anything new under the sun or living something that no one else has lived is that it means we can find ourselves in the company of the saints and in the company of the life of Jesus. So here's the sort of cycle that I see in this story that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Sort of four movements in this, this cycle. The first is that the hopes are dashed. The hopes are deferred of these people. The second is they miss Jesus. The third is then they keep going. And the fourth is that they remember. So we're going to walk through all of those things today in the light of this story. But I want to start this morning with the question Jesus asks them, and I think is asking all of us today, which is, what are you discussing with each other as you walk along which is a really important question to ask ourselves, especially when we're trying to hear something from Jesus. He comes to them, and that's the very first thing he says. And what he really means by that is like, hey, tell me what's going on in your life. And he knows that they're about to tell him something that's very painful and very hard. And Jesus comes along and asks the question and pulls it out of them. Tell me where you are. What's going on? What are you grieving? What are you experiencing? And I think that's such an important question I want to take Just a minute for us to receive from the Lord, um, for us to sit and ask, let the Lord ask that question to us. And then we're even going to turn around to a neighbor and share, It's just so fun. I think it's so important, and I don't want to, like, move forward and, and say any more words without letting the Lord kind of speak to us in this moment. So take a second. What would your answer be if Jesus asked you personally right now? What's weighing on your heart? You ready to share? Turn to someone, maybe someone new, someone you never met before, and share with each other uh, what would you be discussing with each other as you walked along. Go ahead. Guess you all decided you're done. <laughs> Deal. All right. <clears throat> Let's look at the beginning of this sort of cycle, the hopes being dashed. This starts the spiritual life cycle in this text, and I think that is true for so many of us. The words that these two people say When Jesus asks them, you know, what are you discussing? The words that they say to him when I read this text are so gut-wrenching to me. They tell, you know, say this thing about what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. They were likely reeling from the death of the person of Jesus, this person that they knew and had been following. Uh, But they were certainly reeling, because we know of them saying this thing, um, that they were also reeling from their hopes being dashed, from what they thought the rest of their life was going to look like. The thing that they had put all of their hope in and all of their dreams upon um, was gone in an instant. This, from their perspective, what they hoped for had gone and was never going to come to fruition. And is that not the experience of all of us at some point in our life, that something that we hope for ends up not following through? For hoping and wishing for something, even praying for something, expecting something, desiring something deeply, and it not coming to fruition, it not happening. Even more particularly, I think, and what's really hard about this text, is the hope we have being wrapped up in the sort of activity of God and it not happening. When we really pray for something and believe it's what God has for us, and then all of a sudden it's not there. It's not in front of us anymore. It's not an option. It's so disorienting. Has ever happened to anyone? Likely all of you. Praying for someone in your life, for example, to be healed, whether that be like physically or emotionally or mentally and not seeing it come to pass. Like what's wrong with that prayer, we want to ask. Like, Lord, what's wrong with my prayer? It's a good prayer for someone to be healed. We pray for deliverance for ourselves. Lord, help me overcome this thing, whatever it is for you. Lord, help me overcome this anxiety or this addiction or this habit that I can't seem to get out of. Or all of the prayers, and this is the thing that was on my heart most this week as I was thinking about this this moment. All the prayers of the single people who desire to be married. And time keeps going by. Like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my prayers? What's wrong with this desire in me? They said, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And all of us have at least one story of, I hoped God would blank, but God didn't. And it's really easy to write off these two people, I think, as silly or non-observant, which is part of reading this story. I think it's meant to be a little bit that way. Um, but really, these two were devastated individuals dealing with utter disappointment and all that goes along with utter disappointment, with regret regret maybe even some depression, some worry and anger. Um, I had a miscarriage almost two years ago and had already really been struggling with fertility. And so I was, when I got pregnant, was being tested along the way. And from really the second round of blood tests, things weren't looking great. Uh, They weren't looking terrible, but they weren't looking great. Uh, And so I just prayed and prayed and, you know, thought like, "This this is a good prayer. This is something God wants. And prayed things would go in the right direction. And they they didn't ultimately. And it helped me see that like death is sort of a middle space, literally and figuratively. Uh, death, we as Christians believe is a holding space for us until the resurrection. It's a sort of middle, middle space that we go to when we die. And I said a couple of weeks ago on Easter that everything is charged with resurrection power now that Christ has been raised. And I really do believe that. Even the things that we hoped for that did not come to fruition, the things we dreamed of that didn't come about, everything, everything in God's world is charged with resurrection. So what does that mean for the things that have, that have died? I don't know what the resurrection of hopes deferred looks like for you and your life I can't tell you precisely what it looks like. I can give you some examples. Perhaps for a single person who desires to be married, resurrection of that sort of deferred hope looks like meeting someone and falling in love. But maybe also it means finding peace and contentment that you never knew was possible for you in that middle space. Perhaps if you are praying for someone's deliverance, resurrection looks like deliverance through and through. It looks like the Spirit of God coming through and doing a work in someone's life. But maybe it also looks like holding on to that belief that things really can change despite all evidence to the contrary because that is the heart of God lived out in you through your prayers and your hopes for someone. Death never has the last word for us. That is the Easter promise. So whatever in your life has died, wherever the hopes deferred are for you, whether that's something that's very real or just a hope or a dream, I promise you, because this is the witness of the Bible, it has resurrection built into it. And while I can't tell you what that looks like in your life, I can tell you that that is true. Something will be raised. Something is being raised. I could talk for a long time about what is being res- resurrected in my own heart and in my life from the miscarriage experience. And that doesn't mean that like I'm calling that experience good or I'm saying, man, I'm so glad that happened because now all these things in my life. What it does mean when I can say something like that is that I'm calling God good. And what God does is good. And that God is bringing something out in me that I didn't know was possible because of this death that happened in my life. And it's not rose-colored glasses. It's resurrection glasses. It's real. It's not just a perspective. It's not empty optimism. It's like real, solid gold hope. That's what the resurrection is for us. So that's the first part of this, this cycle, these hopes deferred. The second is that often when we are in seasons like this, we miss Jesus completely when we're in the midst of these sort of dashed hopes, we often miss him in the way that he's working right in the midst of where we are. When we read this story, as I said a moment ago, we feel a little silly about it. Like, how ridiculous that not only did they not recognize him immediately, but that he even interprets to them how the whole Bible is written about, about that him. And I just wish I could be there to see their reaction to that. Like, what did they do? He interpreted the whole Bible and said, this is about me. Were they like, cool. That's wonderful for you. Like, we're sad about our thing, but great. So glad that you uh, think the whole Bible's about you. I just want to be there. I want to know. I want to know what happened. We're supposed to see ourselves in it. That's the funny thing. And that's how why Luke is such a good storyteller and a good pastor. Because we read through this story and we're like, y'all are idiots. And then we're like, oh, no, it's me. <laughs> I'm the one who misses Jesus. I'm the one who doesn't see Jesus in times when I should. I really appreciate these stories where people who followed Jesus, even his closest friends, didn't recognize him after the resurrection. Mary thought he was the gardener in the Gospel of John. This couple calls Jesus a stranger, even. You must be the only stranger in Jerusalem who didn't know what happened. Um, There's this sense of not really knowing who, who he was. In the midst of these hard things. And I think this can urge us to try and recognize Jesus in our circumstances. But I also think it's an invitation just to know this about ourselves, that we're in the midst of difficult places. It's normal to not recognize all the ways that God is working in our midst. I'm here to tell you that is very normal. You don't have to feel guilty about it. Not to feel full of spiritual feelings Or totally confident or totally peaceful or full of faith. When you're in a space where you don't know what's going on in your life. You don't know what's next. Your hope is being deferred. That is a normal thing. You're not weird. Or bad. The place we go wrong is assuming because I don't see or have a sense of how God is working, God must not be. That's when we go wrong. That's when we head in the wrong direction. This story helps me step back in seasons where I have no idea what God is doing in my life, where I don't know what's next, and say to God, I don't feel you. I don't see how this works out. I don't feel like you're working, but I know that you are. I know that you're walking beside me and letting that be enough. And that's how we keep going, which is the third phase for me. We keep going. In the words of Anna of Arendelle, we do the next right thing that's my whole point. I'm just kidding. It goes on. Frozen 2 fans out there? I thought it was garbage, but Frozen 1 forever. (laughs) They had all day been walking with this mystery person, right? They don't know it's Jesus. They had been walking with Jesus the whole evening as the sun was setting. They reached their home. And then they noticed that he was going to keep going on in the dark, walking by himself, which was not something that people did back then, because that's a recipe for getting robbed, getting beat up, as we saw in in the Good Samaritan story. Uh, It's not safe to walk around after dark by yourself. And so they did what they knew was the next right thing. Oh, you're going to walk on in the middle of the night? You must not have anywhere to go. You need to come and stay with us. That was the next right thing for them. Hospitality. It may not sound like that big of a deal to us. But to them, it was a big deal, not only because it was the right thing to do for uh, someone who, you know, was going to go be in an unsafe space. But hospitality was like a virtue, a, a way of living as the people of God, the Jewish, all Jewish people understood at this time. It was the way they honored God as individuals and as a community. Because not only was it written into the law that you should take in people take in the stranger. But it was also a way that they could reflect back onto others what God had done for them. That God had brought him in as his own, them in as as his own. So doing the next right thing within for God is a sign that we're not giving up on what God is doing in our lives. Despite how we may feel, despite how things look, doing the next thing is faithfulness. Even if you're not feeling it. That's how we be faithful. I've been recently reading a book about King David. Y'all know King David from the Old Testament? And um, which is fun for me and interesting, mostly because I have never really loved David that much. Um, I love the Psalms, but the life of David is very complicated. And mostly I have not loved David because he is such an optimist. I find him to be irritating, frankly. (laughs) And um, so I've never spent a ton of time thinking about David really in his life until recently. And I have been, uh, despite my best effort, sort of captured by the story of David and Goliath over the last couple of months. And if you don't know the story, let me tell you the story. There's a month-long standoff between God's people and the Philistines who uh, want to take over God's people. And there's this battle trying to happen, um, but at a standstill, because what the Philistines have done is they have sent forward their best warrior, an actual giant named Goliath. And they said, whoever wants to fight Goliath can come and we'll wait until you do. And of course, God's army (laughs) is like, absolutely not. No way. None of us. We're not doing it. And so they just stand there. They send Goliath out every day to fight someone and God's people just continue to not send someone. They're just camped out So David, the youngest of many brothers, uh, comes to give his brothers who are in this army lunch, which that's how all great heroes are born, isn't it? You're bringing someone lunch. Um, So he comes to bring them some lunch, and um, he sees Goliath standing out there in in the field and sees that no one in God's army is willing to go and fight. And David's like, wait, none of you are going to go fight him? We serve the living God which is like, I think, one of the best moments in scripture, actually. We serve the living God. And so he is animated to go fight Goliath, and Saul tries to put his armor on David, and David can't wear it because it's too heavy, which is a sermon all in and of itself. But what happens next, I think, is so important, is David, instead of taking a sword, he goes down to the river, and he kneels down, which in battle, you don't do. It's a posture of vulnerability. He kneels down, and he pulls out five smooth stones. And why does he do this? Because he's going to slingshot Goliath. Which is like not a super hopeful or fruitful sounding thing, right? And yet he takes the time, he kneels down, and he picks out these five smooth stones. To do the next right thing. And it's this moment that God has like stopped me in my tracks over the last couple of months. And in my own life that has been just crazy the last couple of years. And I feel like I'm just in a posture of reactivity and always just trying to like be in sort of defense mode. But I feel that invitation of God inviting me to like kneel down by the river and ask, what are, these, what are five smooth stones for me right now? What are five right things that I can do? And it's taken a while, but I think God has given me those five things. Um, I won't tell you all of them, but they're not exciting. One of them is budgeting. <laughs> God said, you will budget ma'am. It's good for you. It's one of the next right things for me right now. And so it doesn't have to be this sort of magical clouds parting thing, you know. For them, it was just opening up their door and inviting Jesus in. But doing that next right thing made a space for Jesus to come in and change everything. And so if you're in a place right now of not knowing what to do, God wants to let you know what you need to do next. And it's probably really simple It's probably like go to work or like buy groceries, play with your kids, walk the dog. It's so many things like that. So many normal like human things that God wants to bless us through and speak to us through. Because when we keep going, we make space for that light to break through. We live faithfully in the midst of not knowing what comes next. And then lastly, the fourth thing is we remember. This part of the story I find to be so liberating. After they realize who Jesus is, they look back on the whole day with him and recognize how he had been at work the whole time. Uh, They say that famous line, you know, we're not our hearts burning within us. I think what this tells me and really the whole witness of scripture tells me, is we place so much emphasis on feeling God in our present or knowing how God is going to work things out in the future. We spend far less time than we ought to looking back on our life and asking how God has already been faithful in the midst of everything that we've been doing, in the midst of the things that have already taken place. We get it backwards. We place our trust in whether or not we feel and see God right now, whether or not we can see where God is taking us in the future and the way he's making for us, and we miss the stuff that God has already done. While those are important gifts to us when we do get them, like, man, what's better than, like, sitting down to pray and immediately feeling the presence of the Lord? You know? Like, it's so good. You ought to want that. I'm not saying that's not right. You ought to be able to see how God is working something out in the future. I think that is good and right. But these are more often gifts that come sort of randomly to us. And what God wants to, us to do is to look back on our life in the ways that God has already been faithful. Not only to just thank God, but I think we miss so often the blessedness, the spiritual gift of hindsight. I don't know how God is working in the moment almost all of the time. Do I, can I see it, though, when I look back on it? Almost every time. Can I name it? Yes. But you have to actually do the work of looking back on the thing, of looking back. This is why reflection and recollection are so vital to the life of the Christian, not because they're good practices, but we can see how God has been speaking to us. We can maybe discern things about our life and about how we ought to move forward. We can see how God has been faithful to us. An example in my own life is when I was discerning ordination and I went on a five-day silent retreat, which I highly recommend to all people. Y'all should all do it. So great. Um, and I went there feeling fully confident that I was wanted to be ordained, um, and yet the way God blessed me and revealed it even more in my life was was really incredible. And I was sitting uh, by the fire one night at this retreat center and reading a book that was not great and felt the spirit move in me and say, Write down your resume, basically. All the things from even in childhood that you can remember, the things that God might see in you, place his finger on and say, I think that person can be a pastor. I think that that can grow. I can grow something in that. And so I took a minute and looked all back through my life, all the little things, like when I was in third grade and the girl came to me crying who I didn't know and said someone had been mean to her and wanted me to comfort her, even that. Like maybe there's something in me that, comforts, that can comfort people, that can be the hands and feet of Jesus in that way. All of those things. And I wouldn't have noticed those if I hadn't actually taken the time to look throughout my life. Some of you are, have forgotten that God has called you to something and that you're good enough for it, that he has made you good enough throughout your life. Spend some time asking, like, will you show me, God, the ways in which you have called me to where I am, where you have been faithful and so I can now be faithful back to you. Another example is uh, I went on a five-week sabbatical last year, around this time, actually. It's almost been a year. And um, I was between seven and 12 weeks pregnant on my sabbatical that I waited seven years for. Anyone ever been seven to 12 weeks pregnant? It's not nice. And we drove from Georgia to Kansas to South Dakota, to Montana, to Utah, to Colorado, and then flew home with my two-year-old. It was not a nice time. I did not feel restful. I came home being like, that was nice for my family who got that sabbatical. <laughs> I want to throw up, <laughs> frankly. Um, and now I'm taking, finally, this week, been, because it's almost a year, taking the time to look back on that sabbatical time And see all the ways that God did something in me that I couldn't name at the time. That I was literally too nauseous to understand. But God did something. God was faithful. And I can't see it or know it unless I take the time to look back. I believe that what is happening in the present, the way I think about it, is seeds being planted in us. That you can almost always reap the fruit of when you look back on it over time. Let the thing grow up and let the fruit be there and take the time to remember, to look back, to ask God to help you reap the fruit of what you have already lived, the ways that God has already been faithful. So I submit to you this paradigm of the Christian life, these, these four things, and I hope it is helpful to you. And I want to say one more thing before we close. I want to say emphatically that the bass notes playing unceasingly under this cycle and under this text is the faithfulness of Jesus. We can walk our own road to Emmaus always in our life with full confidence that his promises are being worked out in us, which is such good news that Jesus does not start what he is not going to finish. The story of Jesus walking with these two people on Easter evening reminds me of another story of God walking in the evening. Does anyone remember what story that might be? In Genesis, where God is walking in the cool of the evening in the garden, and he finds poor Adam and Eve naked, and they know they're naked, and he dresses them. But now something has happened because they sinned, and there's a separation. And the whole story of the Old Testament is God attempting to dwell again with us, Now that sin is in the world, and it got complicated after sin entered the world. But then Jesus enters the story, and what's the very first thing he does when the cool of the day comes again? He goes on a walk with his people. Jesus made a way to come again into the world and dwell with us, to come and be faithful to us. In Jesus, all God's promises are yes. God's plan all along was to walk with us, whatever the cost was to himself. And we see that in the person of Jesus. So no matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, he is most certainly walking with you. And he paid it all to do it. Thanks be to God.